0: Good morning, everybody. Shall we pray, first of all? Father, we do thank you for this time now, and we do pray, Lord, that your word will be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Lord, that you would guide us in the way we should go, and that we would hear from you today through your word. Lord, be with us and bless us. Help us, Lord, to be doers of your word and to bring glory to your name. We ask this and thank you through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. I did say last week, if you were here, that we'd be looking at Philippians this week. Just like the book of James, that is very practical, this letter as well has some very practical advice in it. In a perhaps different way to the book of James, more in the way of exhortation rather than imperatives. It amounts to the same thing, really. It's a call to be obedient to God's word. Paul's letter to the Philippians is probably the warmest and most affectionate of all his letters. And practically, there are many exhortations to the church at Philippi, and thus to believers down the ages, which focus on Jesus, his humility, and his example for the church to follow. This letter has been referred to both as the epistle of excellent things and the epistle of joy and the first title the epistle of excellent things i imagine springs from what i see as the pure poetry and beauty of verse eight which is in chapter 4 so you might like to turn to that we're going to this is a bit of an introduction to philippians so we'll be dotting about But if you turn to chapter 4, verse 8, I'll read it from the New King James Version. Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there is any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, Meditate on these things. Now, as I thought about that, I thought, is Paul thinking about our triune God when he talks about all of these attributes? Truth. Do we not sing the song of Moses from Deuteronomy 32? Ascribe greatness to God our rock. And we sing, he is a God of truth and without injustice. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, that's in the song. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, John 14, 6. And Jesus also promised the Holy Spirit, saying, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. The Greek word used for noble, the next attribute there, means worthy of respect reverence and awe. David says in Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2, give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength, give unto the Lord the glory due his name, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The next attribute, just, denotes righteous, a state of being right. God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's from 2 Corinthians 5.21. Pure, pure from defilement, not contaminated. The Greek word for pure comes from the same root as the word for holy, lovely. That which is pleasing or agreeable. This reminds me of what we can be like in the grace of God and with the fruit of the Spirit displayed in our lives. Good report, or well spoken of, refers to what is usually considered reputable in the world, such as kindness and courtesy. Virtue denotes any particular moral excellence, a quality of life which makes one stand out in a crowd, so to speak. In classical Greek, I read that it it means the God-given ability to perform heroic deeds praiseworthy if there is anything praiseworthy even about man then the praise really has to go to God for he is our creator and sustainer and as James says every good and perfect gift is from the father the Lord Jesus is all of these things and he is our example we are called to be like Jesus in the attitude of of our minds now we'll come back to that a bit later the title the epistle of joy probably comes from the number of times the words for joy and rejoice occur in this relatively short letter 18 times in four chapters consisting of just 104 verses now that's just a sort of intro my intention is to look now at the letter And in its context and then see what lessons can be learned for today's church to understand the context better I believe it's always worthwhile to have a brief historical appraisal so I ask you to bear with me as we we do this you might think it's not brief actually but we'll come to that in a minute just about the town first of all the city I'm not sure what it was it was a busy place Philippi derives its name from Philip of Macedon who was the father of Alexander the Great and Philip took the town from the Thasians about 360 BC. Philippi was situated in Macedonia which is now northern Greece and was conquered by the Romans in 168 BC. It became a Roman colony in about 31 BC which meant that it had its own government and its residents were treated as if they actually lived in Italy As far as rights and responsibilities were concerned, they were Roman citizens, almost as if they lived in Rome. Philippi itself was located about 10 miles inland from the Aegean Sea and in Paul's day was served by the port of Neapolis. The Via Ignatia or the Ignatian Way was the main highway from Asia to Europe or the West and passed through Philippi, helping it to become a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And Philippi today, I think, is still a ruin, an ancient ruin. I've never been there. Someone may have been there, but I think it's an ancient ruin. The founding of the church, the Christian church of Philippi, was founded by Paul in about AD 50 during his second missionary journey. And we can read about that, and I think we should read about that, in Acts 16, and we read the whole of verses 6 to 40. So if you'd like to turn to Acts 16, Acts 16, 6 to 40. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now just a little point here on the, the text. It talks about they, and then suddenly you're introduced to we in verse 10. Verse 10. And this, we can assume, is the inclusion of Luke. Luke was the writer of Acts, remember? And so he joined them um, as they went on their way. So continuing from verse 11, Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptised she begged us saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews... "...exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes, and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge he put them in into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, What must I do to be saved? So they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, and to all who were in his house. And they took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, He set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers, saying, Let those men go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore depart, and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, And have thrown us into prison. And now do they put us out secretly? No, indeed. Let them come themselves and get us out. And the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out, and asked them to depart from the city. So they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. And when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. Now it seems apparent from this account that Philippi had a very small Jewish population, as there is no mention of Paul going to a Jewish synagogue, which was his custom. Wherever there was a Jewish community consisting of ten households, it was a requirement that a synagogue be established. In Philippi, Paul went to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and he and his team of Timothy and Silas and Luke sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Summarising the events of this whole passage we see that the early church comprised of Lydia, one of the women from the riverside, whose heart was opened by the Lord and she and her household were baptised and a jailer and his household who believed in God after hearing the word of the Lord from Paul and Silas during their imprisonment. And the imprisonment, as we heard, was occasioned by the incidents of Paul exorcising a demon from a slave girl by commanding it in the name of the, of the Lord Jesus to come out of her. The slave girl was then unable to tell the future, so to speak, and her owners suffered financial loss. And therefore, Paul and Silas were brought before the magistrates, Accused of stirring up trouble in the city, and then beaten and thrown into prison. When the magistrates were informed that they had beaten and imprisoned Roman citizens without a fair trial, Paul and Silas were released and asked to leave the city. This they did, probably leaving Luke behind to nurture the newly formed church. Now I say that because chapter 17 continues again with they... So the we disappears and it goes to they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia and its we is picked up again in chapter 20 which we'll see a bit later. So from Acts 16 verse 40 we assume I believe that the new church met in the house of Lydia. She was a seller of purple cloth which was a profitable product and worn by the rich and she would be wealthy herself with a large house able to accommodate a good number of believers. Now we also see from this short account of the foundation of the church that Paul, Timothy and Silas did not spend much time in Philippi on this occasion and that the number of believers was probably quite small to begin with. So we continue following the history of the church. We know from Paul's third missionary journey, which was around AD 53 to 57, that he visited Philippi on two further occasions. We read that after spending two years in Ephesus, a riot broke out there and brought Paul's work to an end. He then visited the churches in Macedonia and Achaia. That's the whole of Greece, as it's known today. And from 2 Corinthians 8, verses 1 to 5, it would appear that he visited Philippi again. Now for his return journey, Paul had planned to sail from Achaia to Syria when he heard of a Jewish plot to kill him. So instead he returned via Macedonia again and sailed from Neapolis. And that's the second time that he would have popped into Philippi. Um, Now in chronological terms, we come to the letter from Paul to the Philippians. The majority of opinion says that Paul wrote the letter to the Philippians during his first term of imprisonment in Rome, which was about AD 61. And there appear to be various reasons for the letter. Firstly, he wanted to thank the Philippians for their support of his ministry, which came by way of a financial gift and physical support. And the physical support came in the shape of Epaphroditus who was sent to aid Paul and help him, serve him whilst he was in prison under house arrest. Unfortunately Epaphroditus had become ill and almost died and Paul was keen to send him back so that he could recuperate at home among the people that he knew. And Epaphroditus was likely the bearer of this letter. That we're looking at. Now, whilst writing the letter, Paul was also able to tell the Philippians about his house arrest in Rome. He also exhorted them to unity and warned them also against false teachers. So those were the reasons for the letter. In writing about uh, unity, Paul also talks about thinking of others and humility and in respect of the latter we have that magnificent passage describing the humility of Jesus in chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. Now overall there are some 38 references to Jesus in the letter to the Philippians which is more than double the number of references to joy and rejoicing and because of the predominance of the references to Jesus found in the, the letter And the fact that Jesus is our example to follow, it seems appropriate to begin our study of the contents of the letter with this important passage which confirms Jesus as fully God and fully man. So we will look at that now, but we will also read the first four verses just to get a better understanding of verses 5 to 11. So let's go back to Philippians and we're into the letter now. Chapter 2, 1 to 11. We're going to read. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness in, of mind, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men." And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now as far as the context of the letter is concerned in this passage, I believe we can apply to our lives what Paul was exhorting the Philippians to do in their lives. As I mentioned in my introduction, Philippians, like James, is a practical book. And in the opening four verses, as Paul calls the church to unity through humility, There are eight exhortations to encourage the believers in their walk with the Lord. Fulfill my joy. Be like-minded. Be loving. Be of one accord. Be of one mind. Do not be selfish or conceited. Esteem others better than yourself. Look to the interests of others. Paul begins, though, with the consolation or encouragement that we have as individuals and also as a fellowship when we are in Christ. Verse 1, the love of Christ should draw us together in common purpose. The fellowship produced by the Holy Spirit should prompt us to unity here on earth as we have a common eternal hope. God's affection and mercy has been extended to all believers and the realisation of this should result in unity among us. Now, in verse 2, Paul appeals to the church to fulfill his joy by being obedient to his words. And I'm sure that we must bring joy to the Lord Jesus when we are obedient to the words of Scripture and the prompting of his Holy Spirit. Being like-minded is to think the same way. And the idea is to maintain inward unity of heart. This is used several times by Paul in other letters, And also by Peter, in 1 Peter 3, 8 and 9, Peter says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And believers should possess a mutual love for each other. For as we are all indwelt by the same spirit, love as one element of the fruit of the spirit ought to be demonstrated in our lives. Being of one accord and of one mind could be translated united in spirit and purpose and reinforces what has already been said. In the context of the letter, it could point to the disharmony which existed or appeared to exist between Euodia and Syntyche, which is mentioned in chapter 4 verse 2. In verse 3, coming back to our passage, we must avoid selfish ambition and not be tempted to desire personal prestige and status. We need to be wary of the pull of power and of pride. Our desire should be to point people to God rather than ourselves conceit is the personal glory some seek rather than wanting to see God glorified by the things we do paul gives us a good example of loneliness of mind in his letter to the corinthians 1 corinthians 15:9 says for i am the least of the apostles who am not worthy to be called an apostle because i persecuted the church of god esteeming others better than ourselves will go a long way in eliminating any disharmony where we show consideration to others in preference to ourselves verse 4 verse 4 speaks again about self-centeredness instead of considering our own rights and plans and interests we should consider those of our fellow believers and when each member shows this mutual concern problems of disunity will be dispelled and this now brings us to verses 5 to 11 describing the great humility of Jesus. Although Paul was quite capable of writing a highly poetic style, as in 1 Corinthians 13 or that verse I mentioned earlier, chapter 4 verse 8, many regard verses 5 to 11 as an early Christian hymn. Even so, it doesn't preclude Paul as having composed the lines anyway. Verse 5 then, Having called us to be of one mind and like-minded, In verse 5, Paul now calls us to have the same mind as Christ. We are to lay aside our personal ambitions and desires for status or prestige and any pride that we may have. Instead, we should be humble and selfless and desire to serve just as Jesus did. Do you remember Jesus washing his disciples' feet, recorded in John 13? Jesus says to them afterwards in verses 15 to 17, For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Returning to Philippians, verse 6 tells us what the mind of Christ is like or his attitude. Christ was in the form of God. The word used for form means essence or nature, which is unchangeable and therefore reflects the divine nature of Christ. Even though he was God, Christ did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. This means that Jesus was willing to give away the rights and honours of deity, not clinging to or grasping them selfishly. The pre-incarnate Christ already possessed equality with God, the Father, and resolved not to cling to it. Instead, we see in verse 7 that he made himself of no reputation. That is, he emptied himself of his rights and privileges, not his deity, and he took the form of a bondservant and came in the likeness of men. Now again, the word for form in respect of bondservant Is the same here as in verse 6, the form of God, and indicates an exact essence, a true servant. Taking on the form of a servant is in addition to Jesus being in the form of God, and yet without some of those divine attributes. One of those attributes that you may think of, that he gave up for a season, for example, was his omnipresence. He couldn't be everywhere at once, but he was still God. Now in the likeness of men... Likeness here is a different Greek word to to that used for form. And this time it's a word which stresses similarity but leaves room for differences. And that can be such as the absence of the sinful nature that Jesus never ever had. So Jesus took all the essential attributes of humanity and was fully God and fully man. Christ humbling himself continues in verse 8 by him becoming obedient to death. Remember Jesus' words from the Garden of Gethsemane. In Matthew 26, verse 39, he says, Or praise, O my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And further humiliation is piled on as Christ's death is on a cross. Crucifixion was the cruelest, most painful and degrading death. At that time. So, having described Jesus' utter humiliation, Paul in verses 9 to 11 then describes Jesus' exaltation. Exalted to the highest place refers to the resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus following his humiliating death. All that he had laid aside was restored to him, with more besides. Verses 10 and 11 point to the consummation of Christ's kingdom when his triumph over sin and his lordship will be acknowledged by every being. Those who bow the knee willingly will receive a blessing, whilst those who bow unwillingly face punishment. This is all to the glory of God the Father. Now to summarise the purpose of this passage, verses 5 to 11, it can be said that some people treat it as theological and some as liturgical. In the context of the letter, I believe it is ethical and practical. It could still be theological and liturgical, but I think in the letter itself, Paul's intention was to encourage his readers to a Christ-like humility. If they were true followers of Jesus, they must emulate his characteristics of humility and hardship. If they did this, they would share in Christ's victory and glory Remember James' exhortation from James 4.10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And Paul's words to the Romans confirm that we are led by the Spirit of God and suffer with Christ, and we may also be glorified together. That's Romans 8. Now, to conclude today's talk from the particular scriptures that we've looked at from the Philippians, chapter 4 verse 8 and chapter 2 1 to 11 without worrying too much about the context of the letter I believe that we can apply those principles um, to our own lives the, the things that we've seen so the challenge then is to meditate on all that is true and pure and good and praiseworthy in short to meditate I think upon our wonderful triune God and in doing this Let us remember that Jesus is our example and seek to follow his humility and obedience and to bring glory to the Father. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you have left this wonderful book to guide us, Lord, and that with the power of the Spirit in our lives, you bring us understanding, you bring us wisdom, you bring us conviction, conversion. We thank you, Lord, that we can believe that you are the one and only true God. We thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us to be doers of your word, that we'd see these exaltations when we read your word, that you are calling us to be obedient, you're calling us to be a humble, and to help each other to think of others more than we think of ourselves. Lord, help us to have, or even start to look like having, the humility of Jesus. We thank you for his humility. We thank you for his death upon the cross. We thank you for his shed blood, cleansing us from sin. We thank you again, Lord, for your spirit. Help us, we pray, as we walk in the spirit and seek to bring glory to your name. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.